This episode contains adult language and topics that may be disturbing for some listeners. Such topics include suicide, drug use, physical or sexual abuse of a child. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Grant. And I'm Erica. And this is From From Crime Crime to to Crime. Crime. Welcome back to From Crime to Crime. Hey, buddy. How's it going? All right. Pop quiz. Last week, you claimed you knew the top 10 most wanted FBI fugitives. <laughs> I'm not listing them. Come on. I'll even give you a hint that one of them solves you only have nine. They've captured one guy. So who you got? Well, I know that. Here's the problem is they're almost all cartel members. And with okay. our Galegos situation, there's no <laughs> way I'm attempting I'm, I'm this. <laughs> So, so you're not doing this because Galego Gallego really scarred you for life and you just can't go back? Yeah. Well, I don't want to offend anybody with my mispronunciations. So. <laughs> well, I think we're all disappointed then that you're not going to name them off because... No, I'm not. We've had people sending us messages and emails left and right about how that's so impressive that you can do that. So you're letting a lot of people down, but we'll let it slide this time. All right. Well... Let's get into this case because this could be another long one like last week. Sorry about that, guys. Honestly, I think people like the longer cases. It seems that our downloads do a lot better when the case is longer. So I don't know. Maybe they want to hear us ramble about nothing for two hours. Yeah, probably not. (laughs) I know I don't, but other people might want to. Yeah. So we talked about last week in the Rodney Alcala case, we talked about how Steve Hodell was the investigator on the Tally Shapiro case. And Steve Hodell's dad was a suspect in the Black Dahlia case. So we decided this week to do the Black Dahlia case. Well, not only was he a suspect, but he was also like Steve Hodell's main suspect in all of this, too. Yeah, he becomes it. He does become it. But it. I mean, yeah. If the sun is saying something, like, you know things might add up. Yep. All right. Well, let's go back to the beginning, because hands down, this is, like, one of the most famous unsolved cases in American history, and they've made, like, countless movies and TV shows about it. But surprisingly, there was a lot of stuff that I didn't know. Yeah, and that was actually why we chose to do this, was because there was a lot of stuff that we didn't know, but we've all heard it, but I honestly didn't know why it was so popular. So on the morning of January 15th, 1947, a lady named Betty and her young daughter were walking on Norton Ave in Lamert Park, which is like a neighborhood now, but back then it wasn't fully developed yet. So there was a lot of open lots and land. And in a vacant lot in some overgrown grass, Betty saw what she thought was a mannequin broken in half. And when she got closer, she realized it was not a mannequin. It was a person. That's scary. Yeah. Wow. Walking up on a person in half. Like that. Yeah. That I just can't even wrap my head around that. I've been trying to as we've learned about this. But can you imagine just walking up with your daughter, no less, to a person just cut in half? That's crazy. Well, she initially thought it was a mannequin because, like you said, nobody would think like, oh, this is a person. And she said that she was ghost white pale like so white she thought it was a man like it was plastic nuts bananas nuts 
Yeah, so Betty runs to a nearby house and calls the police. When the police arrive, the media was already there taking pictures of the crime scene. And We'll get into more of this down the road, but like the media at this time was just downright awful in all respects. In all cases with everything, not just this one. In all regards, they were terrible. Yeah, but the law enforcement wasn't a whole lot better. So. <laughs> that's probably why the me- or that's part of the reason why the media was so bad. Yeah, so when they get there, they're met with a real gruesome crime scene. And this is much more graphic than I remember. So I just kind of want to warn you. Like, we all know the gist, but the victim was completely naked, bisected at the waist. Her torso was posed with her hands above her head and her lower body over like 10 inches from her torso with her legs spread wide open. The victim's blood was completely drained from her body. No wonder she was ghost white, but geez. Yes. But that had to have happened somewhere else because even with all these injuries, there was no blood at the scene. There was no blood on her or on the ground, nothing. And her hair was even damp from being washed. Like her body had been washed. Oh my God. After you've killed someone, like you take the time to like sit with their dead body and wash it clean. Like that's just, it's an extra layer of uncomfortable for me i don't know if that's even the right word like i am very uncomfortable with this though i can tell you that much yeah of course yeah but that wasn't even everything that was done to her her right breast was completely removed oh my god there was a five inch incision above her pubic area that was similar to like a, a an incision that they would do for a hysterectomy at the time oh my gosh and there was a large section of her left thigh that was cut off Like, just the skin cut off. Just not there? Yep. And she had crisscross cut patterns in her pubic area and on some of her skin in other areas. Does the criss cut pattern, does that mean anything or stand out in any way? What do you mean? Well, like, is there a reason for that? Like, is that like, you know, typically a mortician would do that or typically a surgeon would do that for this or anything? Or was it just, that's just what it was? No, I think this person was just playing with her. Wow. While she was alive, or can they tell if it was after she was dead? The autopsy would reveal later on that most of her injuries happened before she was deceased. There was some that were post-mortem, but most of them happened while she was alive. It's even worse, obviously. Yeah. She also had blunt force trauma to her head and her whole body, and she had been given a Glasgow smile, which is where you cut from the corners of your mouth up towards your ears in, like, a permanent smile. Yeah. Like the like, kind of like what the Joker has. Yeah, or like um, the guy from Sons of Anarchy, Chibs. Uh, He's got those I've scars. Seen it. I know it. I just don't remember it. But yeah. Oh, I yeah. know what you're talking. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The the Irish guy. Yeah. So she also had ligature marks around her neck and wrists and ankles, like she had been held down. And she also had tons of cuts and bruises all over her body. They're almost uncountable. The stuff that was done to her. And I've seen different reports about things being inserted into her body, but I can't verify that. Like, I can't find anything, like, on the autopsy report that says, so I don't know if that's rumor. We're going to get into a lot of that later on. There's a lot of rumors with this story because everything was so messed up. Right. I mean, there always are with unsolved things. That's why they're typically unsolved because it's all over the place. Right. Since there was no purse or belongings found with the victim, she was a Jane Doe at first. But this was sensational 
news and the media was super involved. They had almost unrestricted access to the crime scenes back then. Why was this one so publicized? I think because she was beautiful. I thought so too. That was kind of what I was going with as well. Um, yeah. But I just w- wanted to see what you thought. Yeah. I mean, that sounds bad, but I oh, mean. It, I mean, that's, that's true till still today. Like people yeah. who are better looking get different treatment. We all know that. Right. Yeah. And we're going to get into the problems with this case and that's the least of it. <laughs> but like I said, the media was really, really overly involved and the LAPD was notoriously corrupt at this time. They were pretty much run by the mob and gangsters, and their relationship with the media was a lot different than law enforcement today. They used the media for resources like crime scene photos and technology that the police just didn't have. This was way before like ethics or anything came into play, which comes yeah. out. Obviously, it's a massive part of, of our you know society now when it comes to these kinds of things, both in policing and in the media. But it's true, like learning yeah. about like how corrupt, especially the LAPD, like the media is yeah. corrupt. OK, that's bad. But the LAPD, just PD in general, like you expect to trust them. And so like that, that was really and, you know, we, LAPD has had a long line yeah. of uh, corruption. Yeah. I was going to say, they're they're not much better. Like, I mean, they're better now, I think, but for a long time, I mean, into the 80s and 90s, they were very corrupt. Very much so. I remember the Rampart scandal was a huge thing. That was probably like 97, 98, something like that. Yeah. So, in the days following her murder, she was front page news, and the media dubbed her the Black Dahlia. So, why did they call her the Black Dahlia? Because kind of going through all the research that I did, like, I never got like a clear answer as to why and it was always very jumbled so like why did they end up giving her that moniker there's different accounts on how it came about one pretty big theory is that the media made it up because there was a movie out called the blue dahlia and since the victim had black hair they just called her the black dahlia it was super common for the media to like nickname murders back that like Almost like we do with Jane Doe's now until we know their names, but they would do them even when they knew people's names just because it was entertainment and it was media. Sold papers, sure. Yeah. And then other accounts say that once they identified her, they had talked to her friends and she was known to wear a lot of black clothing and a lot of flowers in her hair. So friends called her Black Dahlia because Dahlia is a flower, which I didn't know. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that either. So, okay. Yeah. So there's, so, who there's knows? a few reasons why she yeah. might have been called Black Dahlia. We don't know. Yeah. Either the media dubbed it or her friends called her that before she was even deceased. So her autopsy would reveal a little bit more about her death. Her cause of death was listed as hemorrhage and shock due to concussion of the brain and lacerations to the face. (laughs) So not being cut in half? No. That is like the only injury that was postmortem. Oh, was it? Yeah. Oh, okay. So the cuts on her face were a contributing factor to her death. The cuts on her mouth, which means she was alive when that happened. Yeah, absolutely it does. And, you know, your head, face, mouth area bleeds a lot, so... Yeah. When it's cut. So that all kind of lines up, too. Yeah. So they also discovered that her body was placed and posed in the vacant lot after 2 a.m. How do they figure that kind of stuff out? Like time wise and stuff like because there was dew underneath her. Oh, 
instead of on top of her, which means that when the dew point hit, which would have been at 2 a.m. that night, her body was not there. The dew landed on the grass, and then her body was placed on top of the dew. Gotcha. Okay. That makes more sense. All right. All right. Yeah, which people who aren't from a humid climate may not even realize that's a big factor, dew. Like, where I live now, we don't have dew. It doesn't do here. <laughs> I don't want to it say the word do dewy. anymore. Yeah, it, it doesn't. It doesn't. You don't want to do the do no any longer. Our humidity is so low, it just doesn't. Like when you wake I up didn't... in Cal- in California every morning, everything's wet. The grass is wet. Your car's wet. Yeah, it's, it's true. So I yeah we growing we don't have up here, here, I never would like that makes sense in my head. But obviously, this was done in L.A. So I know um, you know what else we don't have here that I've realized recently. Like, when I come back to visit, I notice it sometimes when I get up and I go somewhere early in the morning. We don't have fog. Oh, that makes sense, yeah. Yeah. But isn't that weird? We don't have fog or dew. Like, I never thought about that growing up in California. It was always foggy in the morning and dewy. Always. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. always. Definitely. Any time of the year, really. Yeah. So, they also figured out that lividity showed that she had died face down, but when she was found, she was face up. Wow. I can't believe even then they were able to figure that kind of stuff out. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. I know. That's why the autopsy report is like so interesting to me because it's amazing how they still use some of this stuff now and how they used it. That like I thought in 1947 they would have just been like, oh, (laughs) she's dead. Like, I don't know what I thought, they, you know, but I didn't think they knew all of this stuff. I didn't either. So, yeah, we learned a lot from this case in in different capacities. Yeah. So they also learned that her teeth were in pretty bad shape. She had a lot of cavities and she had been melting candle wax and putting the candle wax, like shoving it into some of the bigger cavities. Oh, my God. Which apparently was like a pretty common trick during the Depression for people who didn't have money for dental care. Uh-huh. So and this is shortly after the war. So, I mean, it may have just been a trick that she had seen growing up. Right. Yeah, makes sense. Her hair had also been freshly dyed and was still kind of damp from her body being washed. They found feces in her stomach. Oh. Yes. And do you want to elaborate uh, on that? I don't know if you want to elaborate on that or not. I mean, I want to know more about that. Like, what was she eating poop? Or was this like she had yet to evacuate it? No, no, no. Feces were found in her stomach. Not in her bowels, which means that she was force-fed feces before she died. All right. Yeah. Uh, Why? Like, just because you could, I guess? Yeah. I guess. I mean, we don't know why, Grant. If we knew why, we we might know who. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. We don't know who, so we don't know why. I get it, but, like, I I just don't understand this level of, like, I mean, really humiliation or something like that. Like, I... Why would you do this to somebody else? Like, why do you have the time for this? Like, yeah. So some of her wounds were made post-mortem, but most of them, including the cuts to her cheek, like we said, were made while she was still alive. The bisection of her body and other things that were done to her body were so clean that it was more than likely done by a surgeon or someone with at least pretty significant anatomy knowledge. Yeah. I mean, for these incisions to be made so precise and just so clean like that, it'd have to be, right? Like, yeah, just Joe Schmo doesn't know how to, you know, cut a body 
up in well-cut ways? Well, the problem is if, like, you or I would try to cut a body in half, we would have to cut through bone. Because we don't know where all the bones are to be able to bisect a human body without having to cut through bone. Because apparently they're, after researching this, I guess we'd know now, apparently through the L2 and L3 vertebrae, if you slice cleanly through that, you don't hit any bones. Wow. Obviously we had no idea, but wow. Yeah. So this is... uh, medical procedure that was taught in medical school back then and apparently it's like the only place in your body that you can cut in half without having to cut through bone like it's not like it's just one way it's like the only way that's incredible why on earth would anybody need to know how to bisect the body i can't believe that they would teach this in medical school for people to know i can't find like a procedure (laughs) like there's a name for this procedure and everything and it was taught in medical school but I can't find a practical like real world application for it I'm pretty sure it was just to teach medical students about anatomy like this is how your body connects and everything does that make sense like yeah and maybe maybe teach them cutting techniques or something like that but I I don't think it's an actual procedure that was performed on people as a medical person like you you wouldn't survive that of course not and I can't think of a reason to need that but right if anybody's in medical school right now or a doctor or even just knows why Go to our Instagram at From Crime to Crime and leave us a message about why this would be needed to be taught or known about or yeah. any of those things, other than it being kind of interesting, actually. Yeah. From what I researched, it was really just to teach medical students about your anatomy and like how your bones go together and how your body is put together. But I'm kind of like, I mean, once it gets to the part where they're cutting bodies open, like, shouldn't they already know that? Uh, you would think, huh? Yeah. But 1947, I don't know. All right, so getting back to this, investigators needed to identify her to try to figure out what happened. So the LAPD was going to send her fingerprints to the FBI because there was no APHIS or computers or anything back then. The FBI had all the fingerprints. But they used to do it by mail, you know, like the post office. Right, yeah. And it being January on the East Coast, the weather was terrible. And they thought it was going to take more than a week for the FBI to get her fingerprints. Which is like, well, there goes your 48 hours, you know. <laughs> I bet I bet at this point they didn't realize they only had 48 hours to solve something like this. Yeah, they don't. They don't know that. They don't know anything at this point, I'm pretty sure, as we get into. <laughs> Fair. Or they don't want to know. Again, they're very corrupt, so who do we know? Yeah. So the LA Examiner, you know, the newspaper, said they could help. They had this magic machine called a photo sound machine, which was... Kind of like a really primitive fax machine, like a precursor to the fax machine. And they had this because they would send other newspapers news back so news could travel faster. Right. So they sent her prints to another newspaper in Washington, D.C., and then they ran them over real quick to the FBI. And the first time they sent them, they tried sending like all 10 at once. And when it came through on the other end, it was too blurry. So then they decided to send them one at a time and like blow them up. And this worked. Like the FBI was able to use a picture of her fingerprints to identify her. That's incredible. Like really, really incredible stuff. Isn't that wild? Yeah, it's incredible. It's crazy to think about. I mean, 
that part is kind of cool that they were able to work with the media to to get this done because this was just the day after she was murdered. Right. The FBI wouldn't have even gotten her prints for a week. That's huge because now it's the day after her murder and they already know who she is. That's some fine police work. Yeah, I thought so, except it was done by the newspaper, so that's kind of weird. Yeah. But that's some fine newspapering, I guess. <laughs> fine newspapering it is. Yeah. And she was identified almost right away because she had an arrest for underage drinking when she was 19. <laughs> oh, man. And she had worked at a military base a few years before. So her prints were on file twice, pretty much. So she was identified pretty quick. And her name was Elizabeth Short. Probably a pretty common name, I would think, too. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe now. Back then, there was like eight people in the whole country, so... <laughs> She was probably like the only Elizabeth. I mean, there was like 200 people in L.A., I think. Uh, no, I think it was pretty popular. Yeah, maybe. Every, everyone's always loved California. Yeah. But they anyway, they identify her. They know which Elizabeth Short she is, even if it is sure. popular. So the newspaper who had helped ID her somehow, I guess because they ID'd her, the cops were like, I guess this is your case now. And they were given the task of notifying her mother of her death. The, new, the newspaper. Yeah. Which, where's the LAPD or the FBI? Yeah. Like, yeah. there's two different invest, like, two different agencies involved in this. Like, yeah. you shouldn't be sending the newspaper to be doing this. No. And they didn't even send a newspaper. A reporter called her mom on the phone. And before she told her that Elizabeth had been murdered, he wanted to get as much info about Elizabeth for his paper. So he lied to her mother about winning a beauty contest. Oh, my God. Of course, her mom was super proud of her, and he told her mom that he needed info about her to write this, I don't know, write-up about her in the paper that she won a beauty contest. And so her mom just word-vomited everything about her life because she was so proud of her baby and eager to tell him everything they wanted to know. And then at the end of the call, he was like, actually, your daughter had been, had been murdered. What an LA. absolute scumbag. Like, honestly, yeah. there's no other way to go about it. Like, you yeah. suck. Like, you. Dirt I don't bag. care about ethics at this point. No. I don't care that, like, it hasn't been established or whatever. Like, you suck. As a human, you suck. Yeah. I don't care if this was 1947 or 1447. You know that was wrong. Totally. What, what he did was totally wrong. Totally wrong and, like, way over overstepping his line and it caused super confusion because she's like what are you talking about i thought she just won a beauty contest and she's like i don't what are you talking about so the lapd then had to call massachusetts pd because she lives in massachusetts yeah of course and they had to send medford police out there to inform her of her daughter's murder it's like why didn't you do that to start with the only thing, because, I mean, this was a phone call, right, versus sending the police out there. Like, yeah, I don't know, but maybe the police were working on that and the newspaper was just got a wind of it and went, hey, call her now. Boom. Get it in. Get it done. Find out before the police can get in there and, and mess this up. But so I don't know. if that was true, I'm just saying that was true. Then why at the end of the phone call did he feel the need to tell her her daughter was dead? Why wouldn't he just wait and let the police do it? Why wouldn't that... he just get all the information about the beauty pageant and her life and all that kind of stuff and then just hang up. That I don't have all the answers to except maybe like he got his answers and was like, hey, by the way, and then probably he's he just probably, an extra shit person. Yeah, exactly. He probably dipped out of that phone call real quick after. That's probably why she was like, what's going on? 
You yeah, know? I would. That's how I imagine it anyway. Yeah, it's it's horrible. I can't say when I heard that so I was bad. like, "Oh my god!" It's so bad. Like that's that's probably I don't know. It's probably one of the worst things that happens in this entire story. I know it's horrible. I mean, not aside from her being murdered, that's the second worst thing that's happened for sure. Oh yeah, definitely. So we did find out a little bit about her, though. I mean, not in the best way, but I guess we know now. I mean, it worked, so I... right? I mean, he got this info, but he just did it in the shittiest way he could have. Yeah, so she was born in Hyde Park, Massachusetts in July of 1924. So when she was found deceased in L.A., she was 22 years old. Oh, just starting out. Like, just trying to get things figured out for herself. Yep. Her mom's name was Phoebe, and her dad's name was Cleo. She had four sisters, and they lived in Medford, Massachusetts. And her dad did pretty well financially. He designed mini golf courses. I didn't know you could do well doing that, but... Hell yeah. yeah. I feel like maybe mini golf was way more popular back then. Probably a lot less to do. So yeah, I could see that. Yeah. But the market crash of 1929 and the depression that followed took its toll on Cleo. He lost everything. And he couldn't really afford to take care of his wife and five daughters anymore. So he did what a lot of men did around that time. And he drove to a bridge, parked his car, and jumped off. Except he skipped the part where he jumped off. (laughs) Instead, he just took off for California and let everybody think he committed suicide. Wow. Yeah. Wow. What a dick. Men at this point really uh, had a lot going for him, didn't they? Yeah. Well, it's because they could just move to the next town and start over. Like, you could just change your name if you wanted to. You didn't even have to. If you just moved across the country, nobody would ever find you. And many of them did. We know. Just watch America's Most Wanted. Yeah, totally. I think it was John List that did it, right? Yeah, he just moved from, like, New Jersey to Denver and was like, oh, my name's Bob now. And he lived for, like, 18 years. Totally just started over, yeah. Yeah. So Phoebe and her five girls struggled really hard through the Great Depression. It was a hard time for everybody, and it was even harder for her. She was a single mother of five. Oh, yeah. She worked a lot of jobs and relied a lot on public assistance. It was probably very depressing. Yeah. You know, the so, Great Depression and all happening. Yeah, I got it. Just wasn't oh, okay. funny, so I didn't laugh. <laughs> I actually don't think that she, it was depressing for her. Everybody said that Elizabeth was like a light. Like she was a very happy girl, very fun to be around, super sweet. She just had like an aura about her. But they would find out years later that Cleo didn't commit suicide because he called from California apologizing and begging Phoebe to come home to her and their girls. What a unexpected <laughs> phone call that would be. Yeah. She's like, um, no, thank you. First of all, you're supposed to be dead. Now I want you dead. <laughs> like, what? Anyway, she said no, absolutely not. So he didn't come home. And like I said, Elizabeth was very poor, but she knew that she was going to be famous someday. A lot of people that grew up with her thought that, too. Well, they weren't wrong. Yeah. They said she was beautiful, she had blue eyes and dark hair, perfect skin, and she was really into theater and movies, and she wanted to be a star one day. She used to put on shows and plays on her front porch. She knew when she got out of Medford, she would be discovered. Like, she was just like, I know it. I just gotta get to L.A. She was confident. Good for her. Elizabeth had some respiratory issues when she was in her teens, and she used to go stay with family in Florida in the wintertime because winter in Massachusetts sucks, so if you have family in Florida, that's where I would go to. (laughs) 
Usually where people from that area end up. But she did it because I guess the cold, wet weather is worse on respiratory problems. So her mom would send her to a warmer climate. And when she was 19, she decided to look up her dad in California. She's like, hey, wait, my dad lives in California. I want to go to California to be a movie star. Let me see if that's going to work. Yeah. Yeah. So she looked up her dad and he had landed in the Bay Area. And so she headed to California to live with him because... That's where the stars are. But this didn't go well. When she moved in, he had expectations that she would, like, earn her keep. You know, like, cooking and cleaning and taking care of him. Uh Uh-huh. But he had abandoned them and faked his own death when she was five. Oh. She grew up in a really hard time. And now she's 19. Like, she had no interest in taking care of this man. No. She just didn't. You know, aside from the fact that she had... She doesn't even know him. Right. Like, aside from she had aspirations of being a movie star and all this stuff, like, she didn't want to be a housewife in general. She especially didn't want to do it for this man. (laughs) Right. Like, there was probably a lot of resentment there for how she grew up. Can't imagine there wasn't. I mean, he he was just a convenient way for her to get to California. And it being the mid-1940s at this point, I'm sure they weren't, like, working through their issues and counseling or anything they were just like living together and it just wasn't working oh they just yeah they just jumped right in yeah needless to say it's not going well with her father but she wanted to make a name for herself she was taking modeling gigs and working she was hanging out with friends and she was dating a lot she was 19 she just wanted to go out and have fun so he saw her going out with friends and dating different men as unladylike or unseemly to be seen dating that many men. Yeah, I think that's how a lot of people felt about it at this, at this point. Yeah, but fuck him. Like, that's kind of like... Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't really get a say anymore, dude. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm like. What do you think is going to go on with her when she grew up <laughs> without a dad? Like, okay, just checking that this is absolutely your fault, but okay. <laughs> yeah. So she started a job as a cashier at the PX at Camp Cook, which is now Vandenberg Air Force Base. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. And she liked military men. She liked men in uniform. But she was looking for a long-term commitment, and these guys were all short-timers. They had families in other parts of the country. So these guys weren't really hitting it for Like, they were good-looking men. She was interested, but... That's kind of where it ended, yeah. Yeah. Which is probably why she went on a lot of dates, because she was like, nope, nope. We'll get into this, but apparently it turns out she was pretty particular you know she was kind of picky good for her she should be yeah so about this time her and her dad have like a pretty big falling out and he's like i don't think you living here is working out and he gave her like a hundred bucks and told her to take the bus back home to massachusetts wow like the audacity like yeah you dipped when she was five and now you're putting her on a bus to head back to massachusetts like dude you suck yeah but it's like he wasn't really a father to her her whole life Yeah. So, turns out 15 years later, he still isn't. Uh, He clearly wanted nothing to do with it. You know, it's like, why did you even call Phoebe to begin with? You know, maybe he was looking for her to take care of him, I guess. But, yeah, he he was in for a world of hurt, you know? Yeah, but by this point, she was an adult. So, she's like, I'll do what I want. And she wanted to stay in California. So, she went to stay with friends. And this is when she was arrested at that restaurant for underage drinking was right around this time. Getting arrested for underage drinking at 19, man. That's at a restaurant. Yeah. 
That's rough. Yeah, but it sounds like, oh, man, she was a big partier. Like, they make her out to be, like, a partier or, like, some girl who dated around too much, you know, and it's like, she really wasn't. It's because it sells the story more. Well, instead of charging her for the underage drinking and, like, booking her and all that stuff, they did take her mugshot, which we've all seen. But the police officers booked her, and then they put her on a bus back home to Massachusetts. Like, why is everybody so interested in sending this poor girl home? Because then they're... They don't have to deal with her. She's not their problem anymore. Yeah, but it's not like home was full of opportunities for her. Her mother struggled to raise her and her sisters. I'm sure it wasn't the best situation. Like, I mean, I know it was a loving home and stuff, but like maybe there was financial reasons she was trying to make it on her own. Maybe she was like trying not to be a burden on her mother anymore, you know? Yeah, of course. But I mean, women don't have the same rights as everybody else at this point. So it's like, yeah. even if she said, hey, I don't want this, they don't care. They just put her on a bus. Shut your mouth and get on the bus. Yeah, that's that's exactly what it is. Just shut your mouth, get on the bus, and go go away. Quit being a problem here. Yeah, I would have been like, charge me then. Oh. <laughs> like, I live here. Oh. Like, get it. In all honesty, I would love to see somebody try to tell you uh, how to live your life. And- right. <laughs> And see how that would go, because it wouldn't go well. I know, right? Because when I saw this, I'm like, put her on a bus. Like, the nerve. Like, h- how did they do that? Like, <laughs> How dare you? Yeah. So anyway, instead of staying in Massachusetts, she kind of travels around the country, taking waitress jobs to get by. She just kind of like bebopping around. Like I said, she didn't want to stay in Massachusetts. She wanted to get out and get discovered and meet people. And she dated here and there, mostly military men. This was during World War II. And like we said before, she had a thing for men in uniform, but she was known for not putting out. And that didn't fly with a lot of these guys. Yeah, it probably didn't fly very far with these guys. There was one guy, though, that it did fly with. His name was Matt Gordon. And Elizabeth met Matt on New Year's Eve 1944 in Miami, Florida at a party. He was handsome, he was nice, and he was a major in the Flying Tigers. So what the hell's a flying tiger? So apparently... Is it a hidden dragon? (laughs) No. Oh, okay. Apparently it was like a volunteer group during World War II. Some guys were in the Army, some were in the Navy, some were in the Air Force, like from all the different branches. And they all volunteered to be in this volunteer group that went to China and tried to disrupt like the Japanese supply chain during the war. Oh, wow. Yeah, they were kind of like badasses. It kind of seems like it. I mean, it seems like there's people who volunteer to go to Ukraine to fight against Russia. Yeah. So she meets this Matt Gordon, and so they started talking, and they started dating pretty seriously for a few months. They fell in love, but he was stationed in India, and he had to go back. But before he left, he proposed, and he said he wanted to marry her when he got home. And he couldn't take her with him? No. He was he oh, was no. going to war. Grant, you don't take your oh. life to war. This is during World just... War Two. Oh no! You said that. I knew. I knew that. I just yeah blanked on that. But okay, all right. Yeah. Well, I probably confused you because I said stationed in India. He was deployed to India. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Because you said I stationed. I, okay. I should have said deployed to India. But he wanted to marry her as soon as he got home. And they wrote letters back and forth almost every day. They sent each other gifts in the mail. And she was so excited about their upcoming wedding. She was talking with Matt's mom. You know, like she was getting to know his family. It was pretty serious, according to everybody who knew her. 
And Elizabeth worried about him constantly, as I'm sure most women did when their significant other was away at war. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and so she just wanted him to come home so they could get married and start their life. So by August, her prayers were answered when the Japanese surrendered. Matt would be coming home since the war was over. She was pretty excited. A lot of people were. But then a few days later, she got a telegraph letting her know her fiancé Matt had died in a plane crash. Just days before the Japanese surrendered, like literally days before the war ended. That's so rough. Like you have all these high hopes of this dude coming home, starting this wonderful life together, and they literally come crashing down. Yeah. Elizabeth was heartbroken. She spent her days reading Matt's love letters over and over. She sank into a super deep depression. People who knew her said it was really rough, which I'm sure it was. Yeah. So she spent the next couple of years kind of wandering around the country, traveling around here and there between Massachusetts, Florida, California, just trying to figure out how to move on with her life and what she was going to do because she was really committed to marrying Matt and now that part of her life is over. Yeah, no more. Yeah. So about two years later, in July of 1946, she was back in L.A. She was taking modeling jobs, but she wasn't having the success that she thought she would. Like, her confidence was starting to kind of get broken a little bit because back home, she was the prettiest girl in town. She had this aura about her. Everybody knew there was something special. But in L.A., she was one of thousands of pretty actresses trying to make it. You know, it was tough. I mean, the competition was stiff. And she didn't have a real permanent place to live. She was kind of staying with friends on and off. She stayed a lot at a house owned by a man named Mark Hansen, who was a wealthy businessman that owned a few theaters and clubs, like for the Hollywood elite. And he hired a lot of young, pretty girls at his clubs. He'd let these girls who needed somewhere to stay... He would let them stay at his house for like a small rental fee, but he wasn't just like a nice guy. If they didn't have the money for rent, they would have to make it up in other ways. Grass, gas, or ass. Yeah. So he's like the OG Harvey Weinstein, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, he's a total creep. And Elizabeth stayed here on and off, but she wouldn't exchange sexual favors for rent, which is why a lot of times she was off (laughs) on staying there, because if she couldn't pay the rent, he'd kick her out because she wouldn't do what the other girls would do. Where would she go? Did she have a place to go or did she just kind of roam around? Well, she just kind of bounced around from friends' houses. We'll find out what the last couple months of her life was like, but it's been rumored that this Mark Hansen guy had a thing for her, and when she wouldn't give in, he would kind of kick her out for a couple days, and then he'd let her come back, and she would just bounce around to friends' houses while she was gone. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, because it made him mad because she would date a lot of guys, but she wouldn't date him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, him and her roommates at this time said that she would have a different guy take her out to dinner every night, but she wouldn't date Mark Hansen. Well, she wasn't fooling around with those guys either, so she wasn't going to fool around with this guy. Exactly. Which is why, when they find out later, when they talk to a lot of these guys, they're like, yeah, she probably had a different guy every night because when she didn't put out, we didn't call her again. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Yeah. And this could have been like a sign of the times, though. One, she was looking for somebody to settle down with, but also she was broke. And she was not really working steady, jumping from friends' houses to friends' houses. And at one point, she was staying in an apartment with, like, seven roommates, you know? So maybe she was dating a lot to get out of the house because she didn't really have a house, you know? Or for the free dinners. Totally. That could—oh, that's a good point. Those That could definitely be why she was doing that. And there's, like, a term, and they used it back in these days. It was called 
dating for dinner. Like women would go to dinner with a man so that he would feed them. Hmm. I feel like I went on a lot of those kinds of dates. A lot of first ones, not a lot of second ones. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So not giving in to the sexual advances of Mark would leave her to find a new place to live all the time. (laughs) Like. Regularly. Yeah, I bet. So in December of 1946, not being able to find a lot of work in L.A. and not meeting any good military men, she hit the road to San Diego, which has a huge Navy and Marine population. It sure does. And she didn't have any connections in San Diego, and she had zero plan of what she was going to do. But she went to a, like an all-night movie theater one night when she got there, and one of the attendants at the movie theater caught her sleeping in the movie theater. Like, she was in there sleeping. I do that a lot at movie theaters, too. Yeah, me too, but mostly because movies suck. Yeah, I'm not a big—I don't have the attention span for them more than anything. Well, and there just hasn't been a good movie in, like, ten years or more. Although you saw Maverick Top Gun, I haven't, but I've only heard great things about it. From you, I've heard, eh, yeah, it was all right. So, well, might, well the problem might just be your taste. <laughs> well, okay. The problem with that is <laughs> I never saw the first one. What? Yeah. So everybody who like is like, oh my god, it was a great movie. It's so, pro-, you know, they get all the references and like what everybody. And I'm like, I don't like. Yeah, it was well done, but I don't get all the references because uh-huh. I never saw the first one. I know my husband's really mad at me about that. Don't. Yeah, I know. I saw the first one and it's not that good, so you shouldn't watch it. But I did hear that Top Gun Maverick was very good, and you didn't like that one. So it's not that I didn't like it. I just didn't get all the references. It was a good movie. I just didn't get all the references that my husband was like, oh, it's the greatest movie ever. He doesn't sound anything like that. I don't know why I did that impression. Well, because he probably was crying during it because he was so happy to see Iceman and Maverick back together. (laughs) He named your dog Maverick just so that everyone listening is clear. Like Matt named their dog Maverick after Tom Cruise. So yeah. And we call him Mitchell. That guy's last name is Mitchell in the movie, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's not Maverick. I know Maverick's his call sign. It's not his real name. Yeah, it's Pete Mitchell, I think. Oh, okay. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Anyway, let's get back to Elizabeth Short because I don't care about Top Gun at all. Sorry. Which is going to really piss a lot of people off. I just, Tom Cruise and the whole, okay, we're not getting into this. We don't want to be on the bad side of the Scientologists. <laughs> That's for our Patreon episode. Um, we'll have to get Leah Remini in on that because we got to figure out how she got protected from them. Honestly, I would love to talk to Leah Remini. I like her a lot. Yeah, who doesn't? She's awesome. Scientologists everywhere don't like her. Well, I know, but I don't know how she gets away with saying what she does about them when other people disappear. Probably because she's so high profile. They yeah, can't maybe. just make her disappear. That's Although, the problem. It's... We're not, so we need to stop talking about this. Well, maybe you're not. I am, but okay. Okay. <laughs> All right, refocus here. All right, where were we? Oh, yeah, movie theater. So she's sleeping in the movie theater, and an employee named Dorothy finds her, and they hit it off right away. They start talking, and Dorothy's like, what's going on with you? Why are you sleeping in the movie theater? You know, And she pretty much just tells her, like, I just got into town, and I don't know anybody, and I don't know what I'm going to do. So Dorothy offered for her to stay with her for a couple of days or a week or so until Elizabeth got on her feet. This would be where she ended up staying for over a month into January of 1947. She just stayed with her? Yeah, she stayed with Dorothy in San Diego. At some point, Dorothy's mom was like, hey, you should move on because we don't really know you and you've been here a month. Like, (laughs) you know, I'm sure. I mean, that's kind of weird, right? Like, that was nice of them to let her stay there, but it was time for her to move on. Sure. So she headed to the bus depot in San Diego and was just kind of hanging out, like just standing around. And a man named Robert Red Manley saw Elizabeth and 
liked what he saw. And he looped around a couple of times and offered her a ride and she said no thank you and da da da. But then after a couple of times of asking, she finally accepted his ride. Robert was a handsome salesman and he did business in San Diego and LA. Over the next few weeks, they kind of dated a little bit. You know, they'd see each other regularly on and off. And on January 8th, he told her he had some business in LA the next day and she asked if she could ride with him. I'm Assuming she probably was just like, well, I only know people in L.A. I don't know anybody in San Diego, so. Yeah. So he says they spent the night in a motel in Pacific Beach that night, but there was no sexual contact. In fact, he says she never slept with him in the couple of days or a week or so that they'd been hanging out. So that's important. Well, it's pretty on on par for her and what we've all come to know her as. Yeah. So after staying at the motel the night of the 8th, on the morning of the 9th, they drive up to L.A. And she told him that she was taking a bus later that day to Northern California to meet up with her sister. So he drove her to the bus station where she checked in her bags. And then she told him that she needed to meet somebody at the Biltmore and to drop her off there. So he took her to the Biltmore and waited with her for a little while until about 6 that night or 6.30. And then he took off and left her in the lobby of the Biltmore. Just left her, huh? Just dropped her off and went the other way? I mean, she was in the lobby of a really nice hotel. And he waited with her for a little bit and then he had to go. 6.30 at night? I mean, what time? If they left San Diego at 9 a.m., they got to L.A. at 11, they went to the get... Like, did he wait with her really for six hours? Like, that's a long time. That is, that is. Yeah, that is a long time. Although, I don't... In 1947, were cars slower back then? Maybe it took more than two hours to get to San Diego. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know either. Probably. So, anyway, witnesses saw her in the lobby of the Biltmore. Some people say she made a phone call from the lobby. The doorman from the hotel says that around 10 p.m. she saw someone outside and she stood up and walked outside and headed south on Olive Street. And this is the last time Elizabeth Short was ever seen until her mutilated body was found a week later. Do they think she was abducted and like kept for a week? Well, the last time she was seen was January 8th and her body was found a week later on January 16th and nobody saw her in that week between. So she probably was kidnapped for a week. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a pretty good conclusion. That I mean, people refer to this time period as the missing week because really nobody has any idea. She could have just been laying low, hanging out at a bus station. Doing, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or she could have been abducted. They don't know. But nobody who knew her saw her during this week. The LAPD was the lead investigating agency, but the FBI and the media were all over it too, I guess. This was an expensive and extensive investigation. I mean, thousands of man hours right up front, which didn't really matter to the LAPD. They were getting paid off left and right from criminals and gangsters. Like, I don't think money was a big problem for them. No, I don't think so either. But the investigators tracked down Father of the Year Cleo, who happened to be living in L.A. by this time, not too far, actually, from where her body was found, because they wanted him to come identify the body, and they had to tell him that his daughter was dead. And they found him drunk as a skunk, belligerent. Wow. He said he hadn't seen Elizabeth in almost four years and had no interest in coming to ID the body. Wow. Like, dude, guys at this point, most of them sucked. They did. Or at least the ones that made headlines. They sucked. Yeah. He probably couldn't ID her, though. One, he was drunk. And two, he'd spent like a total of three weeks with her in her entire life. He probably didn't even know what she looked like. Probably true. Yeah. So once again, her mom, Phoebe, had to 
step up and come out to L.A. and do this task, too. Like, he couldn't even do this for her mom, who did everything after he left. Like, that's crazy. He didn't even attend his daughter's funeral. That's disgusting, honestly. Like, how can you not even pull yourself together enough to do that? It's not like she wronged you or anything. It's not like, you know, she was the issue ever. You were. Always. Yeah. Now, I don't know what the connection is. I've I've heard that she had a sister up in Northern California, and I've heard that her dad had lived up there from time to time, but she ended up being buried at Mountain View Cemetery in Oakland. Oh. So the investigators obviously get nowhere with Cleo and the whole thing, so they canvass the neighborhood that she was found, and some witnesses say they saw a black car, but that was about it as far as eyewitnesses. Like, nobody saw anything. They tracked down Robert Manley, Robert Red Manley, and he was on a business trip with his boss for a few days, and it turns out he was a newlywed, and his pregnant wife vouched for him where he was the rest of the week. Which where was he? With with his pregnant wife. Yeah, I know, but where where was that location? At home. She said he was home with her. Uh, Well, they were newlyweds. I didn't know if they... Okay. I didn't know if they were on like their honeymoon or something. Okay. But what a shitty guy. Oh, yeah. He's a newlywed. His wife is pregnant, and but yet he's courting Elizabeth. That's crazy. It's not, though. Like, it should be. But this is so typical for this kind of stuff. I mean, look at Michelle Branch. Michelle Branch just (laughs) broke it off with her husband who was cheating on her with his manager when she was, what, six months postpartum or something? Like, men are dogs. I I don't get it. It's just, why even get married? Like, that's what I don't, like, what's the point? I don't know, but I think it's for a look. Yeah, That's the only thing I've ever been able to kind of pull out of So you can look like a jackass when you get caught cheating? (laughs) Yeah, something like that. Yeah, it's dumb. Anyway, Robert Red Manley, obviously they wanted to talk to him because he was the last one to see her, you know, when he dropped her off at the Biltmore. But he took two polygraph tests and he even let them inject him with truth serum, sodium pentothal. And apparently he passed all of that, so. Could have just gotten him drunk. Probably would have done the same thing. Yeah, right. So the LAPD looked into USC med school students, too, and local doctors and surgeons, but all the leads went nowhere. And they did this because they thought with that bisection, like, the person had to have medical experience. Absolutely. But all the leads went nowhere. And while all this was going on, the media was cashing in just zero morals or ethics. They made Elizabeth out to be this loose woman with low moral standards who slept around to get famous and got herself killed, pretty much. Not surprising. Yeah, some reports even reported that she was a sex worker, although they used more derogatory terms back then. (laughs) Yeah, no, they definitely do. I have heard that too, but obviously I think knowing what we know about her from witnesses and stuff, like that's probably not where this was going. Right? Like some of the people who knew her were like, actually, I think she was a virgin. Like couldn't be more farther from the way they described her in the media. Not that there's anything like even if she was a sex worker, she didn't deserve to get murdered. But like they're just not portraying her the way she was. She's a woman. Like they don't think they have to. Yeah, it's crazy. But it sold more newspapers. If it was seductive and salacious and scandalous, it sold more papers, I guess. Because her story was on the front page of every newspaper for over a month. Do you imagine the same story for over a month? Yeah. <laughs> we 
we hear about those still, but I mean, this one dominated the headlines. Yeah. So by the 23rd of January, so like a week after her body was found, a call came in. But of course, this call didn't come into the LAPD. It came into the LA Examiner, which was the newspaper. And this person called himself the Black Dahlia Avenger. And he said he wasn't super happy with how they were portraying her in the media either. And he would be sending them a package soon. So the next day, on January 24th, a box showed up at the LA Examiner, and inside it had a letter that was one of these old-fashioned, cut-out-of-the-newspaper ransom letters. You know how they cut the individual letters? Like in the Cindy James episode? Super classic stuff. Yeah. And it said, quote, Los Angeles Examiner and other Los Angeles papers. Here is Dahlia's belongings. Letter to follow. So, I mean, I think we're all thinking at this point, this is coming from the murderer. Like, Oh, yeah, totally. Super, because... Yeah, that super, like, bubble letter kind of ransom note, and then all of her personal effects that she most likely had on her. Yeah, that's the proof is in the pudding, because what's inside the box was her birth certificate, Matt Gordon's obituary that was cut out of the newspaper that she used to keep with her, her social security card, her personal photographs, and an address book with the name Mark Hansen embossed on the front, which was the name of the businessman that she had lived at his house on and off and worked for. Right. So everything in the box had been wiped clean with gasoline so that there was no fingerprints. Do you need to use gasoline to get your fingerprints off that kind of stuff? I don't know. I feel like in 1947, they they used gasoline for more than what we use it for now. I feel like it was something they just like kept under the sink back then. Probably true. Probably true. Because didn't they used to use it like in lanterns and stuff? Oh, no, that's kerosene. (laughs) Close. But do they have electricity by this time? I think they do. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, definitely. Yeah, if they're faxing fingerprints yeah they do right that was yeah. dumb okay <laughs> so this is the only package though that they can prove came from her killer because they would get hundreds of letters and communications with people c- claiming to be her murderer over the years but this is the only one that they're sure came from her actual murderer got to yeah so over the next few months and years, over 500 people would confess to this crime and police would have to disprove each one individually, no matter how stupid they were. They'd have to go out and make sure that it wasn't true. People have the best of intentions, but so often their action is so lame and not helpful at all. You know, if they could just be like, hey, I actually have like a good tip, that might be a game changer, but... People just want to be involved. They want to be a part of it. They want to say, oh, I called. Hey, you know what? I called. I thought I knew. Yeah. And then they didn't. (laughs) Yeah. Eventually, her murder would go cold and no one was ever arrested or charged. And her murder would become the most infamous unsolved case in L.A. history. And it still is. Yep. But just because it went cold and her murder was never solved does not mean that there were any lack of suspects. There was a lot of suspects. And... They just keep piling up, too, as, like, the years go on. Like, there's just more and more people are confessing or people assume it's someone they know or their neighbor. You know, it's just so many people thought, like, oh, we solved it. But we're only going to mention a couple because there are dozens. So Robert Red Manley was the last one to see her on January 8th before dropping her off at the Biltmore. His alibi was that he was with his boss during the missing week and that he was with his wife, his pregnant wife, and some friends on the night that she was killed. So the night she was killed is kind of flimsy because I feel like maybe your wife would lie for you. Mm, 
at the at this point, yeah, I think your wife might yeah. lie for you in this in this day and age. Yeah, yeah, for sure. My wife would not have lied for me. She would have sent no. me as far under the bus as she could have put me. But yeah, absolutely. I could see your that wife happening would frame here. You. <laughs> yeah, she'd be like, it, if there's yeah. a chance he's getting investigated for this, I'm framing him. <laughs> could be. Yeah, I wouldn't put it past no. her. No. But after looking further into this Robert Red Manley, it turned out he was discharged from the military for being mentally unfit for duty, which doesn't look good. And after Elizabeth's murder in the early 1950s, his wife had to check him into a mental health facility because of his mental illness. So there's there's definitely some keys to this guy for sure. Yeah, none of this looks super good, obviously. And he was a shitty husband. We've already determined that. But he was super cooperative and he took a lie detector test, the truth serum, and he just didn't have the expertise to do that. Like he was not a doctor, you know, and he didn't have any knowledge of human anatomy for any reason. He didn't know where the L2 and L3 met so that you didn't have to hit any bone on the way in no. or out. No. So he's kind of not a really great suspect. The next suspect is Mark Hansen. The Harvey Weinstein wannabe guy. Right. His name was embossed on the cover of the address book that was found with her belongings in that box. And she had called him the day she was leaving San Diego. So a lot of people think that it was him she was supposed to be meeting at the Biltmore. She was always known to go back to his place when she didn't have any other options. And he was always known to let her come back because he liked her. Yeah. So it's possible he tried to take advantage of her and she rejected him or something like that. I guess that, it's but... possible, but it's not very likely that he would send his own address book with his name embossed on it to the police. Right? That's, that's a very dumb thing to do. Yeah, that is a dumb thing to do. Like, I feel like even if it was him, I'd be like, just throw that one away. We'll, yeah. we'll put all this other oh, totally. stuff in the box. Just throw that away. You know, at the very he, least, cut your name off of the embossing. Yeah. yeah. His explanation of the address book, though, is that it was his address book and it had connections in it, like to people that he knew in Hollywood that were pretty high and mighty and that he had gifted it to her a while before she was murdered. Like, here, you can have yeah. my address book. I don't know if that means that he was gifting it to her, like, here's the contacts for other rich men that are probably going to want to try to do what I'm doing to you, which you already don't like, so I don't know why you would want all these phone numbers. Or if she just needed an address book and he's like, here, take my old one. Like, I don't understand why that was a gift, but this is nice. Well, it was probably like, oh, you're trying to make it in the industry? Cool. Here's my address book. Lots of big names in there. How about now we make a deal? You know, that's probably where it was at. And she yeah, was like, maybe. oh, no thanks, you know, and still kept yeah. the address book. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Like you said, though, if he was the murderer, why would he send that? That just doesn't make any sense. But totally. The other piece that doesn't fit with Mark Hansen is the medical knowledge to be able to perform the bisection. He didn't have that. He was a businessman. He was not a doctor. Right. Unless he outsourced it, which is another interesting theory, is that Mark Hansen was a super connected businessman in L.A. And he might have hired a guy named Leslie Dillon to do his dirty work. Ooh. And this theory comes from a book that was released recently called Black Dahlia Red Rose. Released recently? Yeah. Oh. Dillon was a former mortician's assistant. So he would have the knowledge. And he was known to have been a hired hand for Hanson and the mob. Like uh, he would do bad things for rich people. <laughs> yeah. 
He had written a letter to the LAPD psychiatrist who was familiar with the case because he was interested in sadism and wanted to know the doctor's opinion on this case. So this LAPD psychiatrist and this Leslie Dillon guy started writing back and forth about sexual psychopaths and they exchanged letters. It was really weird. And after a few of these letters, the doctor started to think that Leslie Dillon was the killer. So he set up a meeting with Dillon in Las Vegas and confronted him. And was like, you did this, dude. And this Dylan guy was like, no, it wasn't me. It was my friend Jeff Connors. He did it in a hotel room. Wow. So he, so they think they at least are close to knowing who it, who it was. Yeah. So they're like, okay, well, who's Jeff Connors? So they go to San Francisco. They're trying to find this Jeff Connors guy. Obviously, they don't find him. So this psychiatrist thinks that Jeff Connors is a, like a personality that this Dylan guy made up. And that this Dylan guy actually did it. So they arrest Leslie Dillon. And then a few days later, the San Francisco police call. And they're like, hey, we found Jeff Connors, whose real name was Artie Lane. And he worked at Columbia Studios. So even though Leslie Dillon didn't have an alibi for the week Elizabeth was missing or her murder, they let him go because they were like, well, now we have to focus on this Artie Lane guy. Which, of course, went nowhere because that guy just made that whole thing up. Totally. It seems pretty obvious, too. But, I mean, we also kind of have hindsight, so... Yeah, but they just let him go, this Leslie Dillon guy. And the theory behind Mark Hansen and Leslie Dillon is laid out really well in that book. But to sum it up kind of more quickly, the theory goes, Mark Hansen was sick of Elizabeth not giving in to his advances. And, you know, he had a thing for her and she wouldn't give in. So he hired Dillon to get rid of her. Like, I don't want to deal with her anymore. Just get rid of her. And he didn't realize that Dillon was a sadist and a sexual psychopath. Like, he didn't know Dylan was going to do it in such a public spectacle of a way. Oh, wow. Yeah? So, apparently there's witnesses that supposedly saw a dark-haired woman matching Elizabeth's description staying at the New Astor Motel the week of January 9th through the 15th, which is the missing week. Sure. And the New Astor Motel is three miles from where her body was found. And Dylan used to live there. So things are really starting to line up and point towards this guy. Yeah. The owners of the New Astor Motel and their brother and sister-in-law all said that they saw her that week. And a man with an accent that they couldn't place, maybe German, was there too. And Mark Hansen was an immigrant from Denmark. So he had an accent. Wow. The owners say they found a bag of bloody clothing in room 9 on the morning of January 15th, which is when her body was found. And room 3 was covered in blood and feces. Well, that would answer some of those questions, wouldn't it? Yep. And they were aware that the man with the accent had major connections to the mob and LAPD and all that kind of stuff. So they were scared to call it in or do anything. So they just cleaned it up. God. And when this all came out later, they were interviewed again by the police in Mark Hansen's office. That's how connected this Mark Hansen guy was. These people did a police interview in front of Mark Hansen about Mark Hansen. (laughs) so the two in-laws stuck to their story they were like yeah we saw this guy and the dark-haired girl and the room was bloody you know but the two owners of the motel that live in la they were like no we didn't see shit they totally recanted all of what they said the lapd corruption is just sky high at this point yeah it is so a few years after her death a grand jury was put together by the da to investigate the murder and other murders and how they were handled by the la police and it found endless amounts of corruption So this theory pretty much goes that because of all the corruption and Mark Hansen's involvement is that he could have hired this Leslie Dillon to do this and then paid for and intimidated his way out of it. Sounds like it's all starting to line up with this guy, huh? Yeah. It's a pretty 
pretty interesting theory. But the last suspect that we're going to talk about is obviously the one that we think did it. <laughs> so Yeah, the one we think did it for sure. So Dr. George Hodel was a venereal disease control officer for L.A. during this time. And he was an interesting character, to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> to say the absolute least, he was... Interesting. This guy's a yeah. fucking lunatic. Yeah, yeah, he is. First of all, he was a genius. He had an IQ that was one point higher than Einstein, which he loved to tell everybody about. Although, I mean, honestly, I would love to tell people that, too. So fair enough. Yeah. He went to college at 15 and he got kicked out for having an affair with one of his professor's wives and getting her pregnant. But eventually he would finish school somewhere else because he went on to med school where he like super excelled in surgery. But he, then when he became a doctor, he never practiced surgery. Instead, he was interested in venereal disease control, which was big at this time because during World War One, a lot of soldiers suffered from VD and they were trying to prevent a lot of that during World War Two. But he was interested in it because he was obsessed with sex. That's the weirdest and most gross way to be obsessed with sex. <laughs> like, Yeah. But he was. I mean, he was also really upset, like really obsessed with this real abstract, avant-garde sexual art stuff. He called it surrealism and had some super pretentious way of describing it. But it was just an excuse to throw these big, huge, weird, like eyes wide shut parties where people pretended that being sexual psychopaths, sadists and pedophiles was some kind of like form of art and expression. Hmm. They literally used art as an excuse to be pedophiles like they were like no it's art it's fine it's like no <laughs> no it's not, it's not. stop it <laughs> yeah. it's gross just so we're all clear anyway he was married a bunch of times he had a bunch of kids with a bunch of different women like this guy was interesting but his wife Dorera divorced him in 1946 so after that it was like a total free-for-all for these creeps for a few years and there was like famous people like john houston the actor and director Sure. People like that would hang out with this guy at these creepy parties. And then this artist named Man Ray, who was like a pedophile and a photographer, and he, he's he been accused of taking nude pics of George's daughter at like 12 years old. He's gross. Oh. Anyway. God, I hate this kind of stuff. Like, it really bothers me. Yeah. So George came on the radar a few years after Elizabeth's death when his 14-year-old daughter Tamar came forward and pressed charges against her father for sexually assaulting her and passing her around to his pedophile friends at these creepy parties. It's bad enough that she would have gotten like involved in this, but that at the hands of your own dad, like it just makes it that much worse. It's sad, too, because we're still hearing about this. Yeah. We hear about this kind of like, stuff all the time. I know. Like, this still goes on. You would think, like, oh, this is some weird one-time event that happened to this one poor girl in this family. But it's like, this shit happens all the time, I guess, in Hollywood. Like, that's gross. It's super gross. Yeah, so the accusations are pretty horrendous, and there were witnesses to these parties and assaults. At trial, two other grown adults that were in the room and participated in the assault of this child and testified to that in court. But yet they weren't arrested or tried for sexual assault. But they were like, yeah, we were there. This happened. Why? I don't know. Why weren't they? We don't know. Well, from everything I've heard, it was pretty easy to buy. I mean, it was like, well, give the DA 50 bucks and you're good to go. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why else? This is crazy. Most of the time in an incest trial, there isn't any witnesses. It's the, the perpetrator and the victim, you know, and it's a he said, she said, there's fucking witnesses to this. There is adult people that were like, yeah. We did this to her. Yep. Yeah, they're admitting it. Yeah. 
Oh, but it gets better. So she claims that she got pregnant by her father and he forced her to have an illegal abortion. Then her own mother and other family members testified that she was lying at this trial. And George Hodel was acquitted of incest. There was fucking witnesses. Yeah, it's terrible. So the general feeling was that he paid off somebody big and had dirt on other people you know something had to have gone on here and the family testifying that she was lying i mean the general thought is that they were afraid of him or they were afraid that he was going to cut off the money if he was in prison there would be no money yeah i can see that but yeah so during this trial tamar actually accused him publicly of being elizabeth's murderer and that he had murdered other people like his secretary that had died of a drug overdose But her own mother had painted her out to be a troubled child who was a liar. So Tamar was kind of like black sheeped from the family and had little contact over the years with like her younger brothers or anybody. And her life was pretty tragic and messy. She would have a daughter, name her Fauna, give her up for adoption. Then she had four more kids and she was not a good mom. She never dealt with her trauma and then went on to abuse her children. And they've even accused her of selling them to her friends and stuff when they were young. It's pretty awful. But if you're interested in this kind of stuff, there's a podcast called The Root of Evil, and it's hosted by Tamar's granddaughters. Wow. It goes super deep into this Hodel family trauma and history and all that stuff. So if this guy is super interesting or sounds interesting, you should listen to that podcast. It's amazing. I mean, it sucks because it's a true story and it's of their family and it's heartbreaking. But they're like trying to deal with their life and their past. Crazy stuff. Yeah. That does sound interesting, though. That podcast. That sounds interesting. Yeah. George's sons are in it, too. Like Steve Hodell, the homicide detective, and his brothers. And George was their father. And they talk about how, you know, what kind of a dad he was to them, which wasn't a good one, but it was a different not good than he was to his daughter. So, I don't know. It's really sad. Anyways, we're going to fast forward to the late 90s now. And Steve Hodel is retired from the LAPD Homicide Division and he's living in Washington when his stepmother calls him and says his father died in San Francisco. So Steve goes down to help her with the arrangements. And George was in his 90s and he had heart failure, so it was sort of expected. Sure. But it turns out that he overdosed on sleeping pills. Oh. Yeah. So he didn't even mean to kill himself. No, 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 he did. He overdosed on sleeping pills on purpose. Oh, Oh, intentionally. Yeah. I guess he just didn't want to be old and sick. I don't know. Fair enough. Yeah. So he told his wife to destroy his personal effects after he died. So she did. Although she saved one photo album and that had old family pictures in it. So she gave that to Steve when he came down. And when he looked through it, he found a couple of pictures of a beautiful woman with dark hair from the 40s. And he asked his stepmother who this woman was. And she's like, I don't know. That was before my time. I have no idea. And something about this woman just clicked with Steve. She reminded him of the Black Dahlia. Crazy. Yeah, and growing up in L.A. and then being a homicide detective for the LAPD, he was aware of the Black Dahlia case, but just like on the surface, like most of us are. He said he didn't even know her real name. Like, he just knew Black Dahlia, the headlines, you know. And he knew what she looked like? Yeah, I mean, growing up in L.A. and, I mean, growing up anywhere, you know what the Black Dahlia looks like. You've seen her picture on newspapers and on TV and stuff. I know now. I probably wouldn't have known before I started looking into this case. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he was a homicide detective. I mean, this is one of the biggest unsolved cases in L.A. history, so I'm sure he'd seen her, but he didn't know her case, is what he's saying. 
But something about the woman in this picture made him think of her, even though he didn't really know the case that well. So he finishes up, he goes home, he doesn't bother with that. Then a few days later, he's talking to his sister Tamar on the phone, and they don't really talk. Like, they haven't had a very close relationship. But they're talking because their dad died, and she mentions to him, you know, dad was a suspect in the Black Dahlia case. And Steve was like, huh? What are you talking about? But he had no idea. How was that kept from him? You know, like, I feel like that would be something that would be out there. Because he was young. He was young when uh, when all of this happened. Okay. I mean, he was seven, eight years old. He was really young. But there was kind of a split in the family after this incest trial. And all these kids ended up living with their mom. So, like, and he didn't really have a lot of contact with his older sibling or anything. So nobody ever told him that his dad was a suspect. He never knew. Wow. What a family secret. Yeah. But this conversation got him interested in those pictures again, because he's like, that's the second time this Black Dahlia case has come up, you know. And what he didn't know was that he was going to fall down this rabbit hole that would take years to sort out. All this family trauma, generations of Hodels that have little pieces to a big puzzle. And during his investigation, he found tons of circumstantial evidence that linked his dad to Elizabeth Short's death. But what he also found was that the LAPD had zero evidence from their most famous homicide. Like, nothing. They didn't have any case files left. They don't have any physical evidence. Nothing. When he was trying to investigate this, he's like, what can I... You know, he wanted to see if his dad was a suspect while he was trying to investigate this. And there's nothing. They've lost everything over the years. So there's no proof that his dad was ever a suspect except his older sister saying it. But Steve does all this investigating, finds all this stuff that's enough to convince me his dad did it. And he writes this book. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he writes this book called The Black Dolly Avenger, which would go on to be a New York Times bestseller. But there's still a lot of people who don't believe it because the picture in the fo- in the photo album that caused him to like start all this turns out wasn't Elizabeth Short. But that's not the reason that he was using as proof that his dad did it. That was just the reason that made him look into it. Yeah, I gotcha. Either way, this book is fantastic. But after it's finished, he doesn't quit looking into it. And he's found out a ton more since the book was released. So it turns out that the original investigator on this case had thousands of pages of files on George Hodel. And the DA's office even bugged his house at one point. And it's all in this file. But the LAPD lost or threw away the file at some point over the years. Oh, my God. But the lead investigator knew shit was corrupt and knew everything was real weird about this case. And he made a copy of everything in the case file when he was ordered to give up on this case and that it was cold and a waste of time and he was ordered to throw the throw it out pretty much by a superior officer and he's like uh that's not how this works so he made a copy of it and he stashed it in the vault at the da's office wow what a badass yeah so after steve's book comes out this reporter calls the da about steve's book and he was just asking questions about some of the allegations that were in the book because there's a lot You know, and the DA says, hey, we got a box in the vault labeled Black Dahlia. Do you want to come down and we'll open it and see what's in it? Hell yeah, I do. Yeah. So this reporter and Steve and the DA, they they open this box. It's the fucking case file. It was all there. Wow. Tons of Everything? shit. Tons of shit. Not evidence. It was just copies of all the investigation, you know, like that this investigator did. But it was tons of stuff about Hodel being the prime suspect. And it even had the original transcripts from when they bugged his house. 
and the tapes are gone from this because the LAPD says they don't even know the tapes ever existed. Like, we don't know anything about this. Yeah, they didn't want anything to do with that. Yeah. But the transcripts that were found in the DA's office say the house was bugged from February to March of 1950. So three years after Elizabeth's murder. But that was right after the incest trial where his daughter accused him of being Elizabeth Short's murderer. Because that incest trial was in December of 49. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So he says really incriminating stuff on these tapes, like, supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia, they could never prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary because she's dead. You know, like, he says really incriminating stuff on this on these tapes. He talks about payoffs and law enforcement, and one of the tapes even had a woman screaming. It was pretty bad, and it seemed like, based on this case file, law enforcement was super closing in on George Hodel in, like, early 1950, but then Hodel had no interest in seeing how that was going to play out, so he packed up and he moved to Japan, and then the Philippines, and then the case went cold. Leaving the country is never uh, usually, <laughs> like, a good a good thing to make you feel a little more innocent, you know? Yeah. So Hodel ended up having 11 kids in total with five women, and he spent the rest of his life until 1990 not in the United States. And when he did move back, he rented the top floor apartment of a high-rise building that overlooked the cemetery that Elizabeth Short was buried in. Wow. And that's where he died. So he always kind of kept an eye on it. Yeah. I don't know. The weird thing about all the case file and everything that I've read about that is that it really seems like they were honing in on George Hodel and then he just skipped the country and it was like they just gave up on it. Stopped. Yeah. They're like, well, he's gone. I guess we're done. Yeah. Or they were paid to be done. (laughs) But at the same time, if they were paid to be done, like then... Why did he leave? <laughs> you know? Like, yeah, that's so. a good point, too. Uh, maybe maybe they did both just to, you know, put everything under the radar. Yeah, because it's rumored that he had a lot of dirt on a lot of really high-ranking people in the community, whether it be law enforcement or DAs or whoever, because he, w- he was their doctor. Right, exactly. Sounds like he knows a little bit of everything on everybody. Yep. So do you have anything else that I forgot to mention about George Hodel? Because he was your favorite part. Oh, my gosh. He was my favorite part of this whole thing. I don't. I don't know. There's so much about George Hodel that like just as a person, like I started going down that rabbit hole too a little bit. And it's just like it it points so much to him. There's so much that makes sense that makes it sound like it's him. His own son says that it's him. You know, I, I know you and I think that it was most likely him like this was just crazy. George Hodel was a terrible person, a terrible father, terrible partner. Like just everything about him was bad. He just happened to get away with all of this stuff because of the timing. It was a very lawless land. And so he didn't have to play by the rules and he took full advantage of that. Yeah, 100%. And a lot of people think that Steve Hodel is kind of like reaching like, oh, okay, your dad killed the Black Dahlia. It's like, why would somebody want that to be true? Like, exactly. He set out to prove that his dad didn't do it when his sister said that he did. And then everything led him to believe his dad did do it. He's like, ah, shit. Yeah. You know, like that. He didn't want his dad to be this guy either. Yeah. But it turns out that's where the evidence took him. But everything is circumstantial, though, because there's no physical evidence. There's no DNA. There's no none of that. Of course. So it'll never be able to be like fully proven. But there's nothing that is proved either that it isn't him. Like, everything points to it being him. Uh, yeah. I mean, everything points to us thinking that it's him for sure. And though there are other suspects that do kind of yeah. make sense, there's not as many that line up to make sense right. like this. And like you kind of said, too, like, his son set out to prove that it wasn't him and instead proved, well, 
believes that it was him, which again, no one wants that in their family. No. You know, like nobody wants that to be their their claim to yeah. fame. Oh, and there's a whole thing too about that Man Ray artist that was his best friend. Some of the artwork that he did resembled some of the things like it had crosshatch patterns in it, like that were cut into her skin. He has one painting that he did that has like the Glasgow smile, you know, like on the person. There's one where the person is cut in half in the painting so people have kind of surmised that this was george hodell's like impression of this man ray guy's art because he was his favorite artist it was his own art in life yeah so so sick so so sick but there's a lot of connections like that that's all that's what i'm that's what i was getting at like there's just weird things that just totally make sense so if this story interests you though i would definitely check out the root of evil podcast and steve hodell's book black dolly avenger i think i i will actually look into some of these things because it's been what almost 80 years now not quite almost 80 years and we're still talking about it so there's a lot to it it's it's a fascinating case for sure yeah it is all right i think we've said everything there is to say about the black dahlia or at least all (laughs) that we're we're gonna say about the black Dahlia. all right well i love you i love you too i'm glad we did this case i know we've had quite a few suggestions for it and i was always like nah like everybody yeah. knows that one. There's no point in it. But then it turns out we didn't even know it. <laughs> not as yeah, definitely not. I didn't I had no idea to be honest. Like this was a whole new thing for me. So I'm glad that I got to learn about it. All right. I love you and we'll talk to you soon. Okay, love you too. Don't forget to change your Amazon smile to DNA Dope Project. Oh thanks. I almost forgot to say it. You know what? I got you. That's what I'm here for. All right. Bye. <laughs> All right. Love you. Bye. Love you too. Bye.